Let's pray. Father, we look to you as our sole provider for our salvation. Pray you would encourage your children this morning in faith through your word and through your spirit. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. amen. Stand and read. We'll read from verse uh, 13 of chapter 1. 13 through 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Amen. This is God's word. May we see it. I'm afraid of snakes. I don't like snakes. Some of you probably know the Greek word for fear. Phobos. You can hear the word phobia in there. I have a phobia about snakes. I'm afraid of them. Well, this this command here in verse 17 that is, a, is, is the focal point of a single sentence, really, beginning in 17, going through 21. The command is, conduct yourselves with fear. Conduct yourself with phobos. Are we to have a phobia about God? Is that what Peter's saying here? Are we supposed to be afraid of God like I'm afraid of snakes? Or perhaps it's more that we're supposed to be petrified of God, like if we misstep, if we fall off that tightrope, is, is God going to smite us? Is, is that the idea here? Are we meant to walk on eggshells around God? Surely Peter isn't so manipulative as to motivate obedience through scare tactics like that, though. So what, what does he want from us? What is this fear that he's talking about? According to R.C. Sproul, Luther distinguished between two types of fear, a servile fear and a filial fear. Servile fear being that fear that a slave might have under a cruel master's whip or a prisoner before an executioner, that sort of anxiety type of fear. Certainly that fear is legitimate between those who hate God, enemies of God and in God. But we as Christians, we are made right with God through Christ and So we're told, yet, though we're made right, to fear God. 
filial fear then is kind of it's that respect that a child naturally has for his father. It's a recognition that father knows best. It's a respect for his righteous anger. An awareness that his anger is even extended on our behalf. And healthy respect for his discipline. We see this fear in imitation, a love for what he loves, a hatred for what he hates. And it's seen ultimately in an unshaking trust in God. It is a respect and an awe for God. So this filial fear is the fear clearly in view here in verse 17. As we can see, he he begins, If you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear. So it's my hope this morning as we move through this text briefly that we'll be moved to a deeper fear of God. And I also hope that we're moved there properly, to a proper fear of God, and moved there by proper means, proper motivations. So as is characteristic of Peter, he gives this command, and then he goes on to kind of expound on it, give further explanation of how that looks, how that comes into existence. So the command, again, is walk with fear, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Then he gives us kind of three, what I would call, wellsprings from which proper Christian fear flows. First is our familial relationship with God, that father-son relationship. Second is our knowledge of the high price paid for our redemption or our ransom. And third is God's work in redemption. So, begin with our familial relationship with God in verse 17. If you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now look at how God is defined here. He's defined as the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. God is the standard of right and wrong. He is the definition of morality. And morality begins and ends with God. He's the one who judges all and meets out appropriate judgment or reward. In the Greek here, it's more clear that this is almost a title for God. He is the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. That is his position, his office. And he does it impartially. We might like to think here, you know, call on God as Father. Oh, well, we have a we have got a family discount. We get different standards. Well, we don't. Every person is held to the same standard. Rich, poor, male, female, black, white, Christian, Muslim. God's law is God's law and we're all accountable to it. God is the impartial judge. And the measure by which justice is given is the deeds we perform, it says. Now, incidentally, there will be a final judgment, but we know we know as true believers that our judgment will not be based on our deeds, but on Christ's deeds. Thus, we will be judged on His merits. Also, there's many who believe that even the deeds of Christians will be measured um, on that day, and ultimately will be rewarded for those. 
think there's a lot to be said about that. We could draw these ideas from the idea of storing up treasures for yourself in heaven, or uh, Romans 14 or 1 Corinthians 3 also indicate that, that that type of judgment will take place. But I don't think that that's what Peter is quite getting at here when he talks about the Father's judgment. In other words, I don't think he's trying to motivate godly fear in the present by kind of leveraging final judgment on us. Rather, I think it's more likely he's simply pointing to the reality that the one we call Father is that same one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, the judge of the universe. A position which should garner a high degree of respect and awe or fear. When I was in seminary, we were in church history class and a professor had a friend come in with his father and his father was a, a judge somewhere. And uh, I don't remember their last name, but we just call him Smith. So my teacher said, well, this is Judge Smith. And, and he said, he always tries to get me to call him by his first name, but I just can't do it. He's Judge Smith. He has a high degree of respect for the position. And we do that in the world with people who hold offices. We respect, you know, Judge Smith or Dr. Sproul. We even make our kids address adults with that type of respect. Cohen is, is supposed to address most of you as Mr. or Mrs. God holds that title the one who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Thus we hold him in highest esteem. If we respect Judge Smith, how much more should we respect the judge of the universe? But we as Christians are we're in this exceptional position of calling that, God, that person, the judge of all, we get to call him Father. Let that sink in a moment. The judge of the universe we call Father. It says, and if you call on him as Father. The logic here is not, if you would like to call on him as Father, walk in fear. The logic is, you do call on him as Father, therefore walk in fear. Godly fear is not something which flows from the threat of a, of a pointed finger. Godly fear is something that flows from security and resting in God's fatherly arms for the Christian. God is then both our Father and our Judge. And I think we are prone as people to place too much weight on one or the other of those <clears throat> things. Either we emphasize God's fatherly love, neglecting His office of judge of all, or sometimes we emphasize His power to judge and His power to damn, neglecting to look at His fatherly disposition towards those that He has redeemed who are in Christ. But the proper response is a balance, is a response to God's fatherhood is fear and not flippancy. You might hear a more free-spirited Christian sometimes begin a prayer, you know, uh, hello, Daddy, <laughs> which makes us cringe. Or, you know, that book, movie, The Shack, where God the Father is, is depicted as this jovial black lady named Papa. I mean, I long for intimacy with my Heavenly Father like anyone else does, but I think we can say those type of expressions take intimacy too far to the neglect of who God is as our judge as well. Amen. 
The God we call Father is judge of all, and we're called to walk with a disposition of awe and reverence toward Him. We can certainly go far too far in the opposite direction. God can be kind of pictured as this great Grinch in the sky who, who only has wrath for the filth that is humankind. All the while we forget that there's this entire group of people who have been brought into the family of God, adopted and brought in by Christ's blood. And of those people, it can truly be said, we have peace with God. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's the servile fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So we really can come to God as the text says and call on Him as Father. We can come like a child who comes to his father for a glass of water. As redeemed, adopted children, we can say, Help me, Father, I need you. I hurt, I don't understand, I love you. Draw me closer to yourself. God is our Father. So I think Peter's point here is we have this privilege to call God Father. We also should go through life with a disposition that our Father is also the one who judges the world. Command is given here, walk in fear. And the first wellspring out of which that godly fear flows is our familial relationship with God as our Father. Secondly, now, Peter points us to the knowledge that we possess of the high price paid for our ransom. The high price for our ransom. I kept the price of Kelly's engagement ring hidden for a season. She found the receipt one day. <laughs> Relatively speaking, it was very inexpensive engagement ring, but for a 19-year-old kid with an eight fifty an hour work-study job, it was not inexpensive. But I hid the cost of that ring, but here he says, we know the price paid for our ransom. Insofar as something infinite can be quantified anyway. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways of your forefathers. Not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. <clears throat> Once again, struck by Peter's angle of approach here. If I was trying to motivate someone to fear, you know, some punk kid trying to date my daughter, for instance, I, probably I would first turn to threats. But Peter doesn't say, you know, look here, buddy, if you don't shape up, God is going to smite you with fire. Rather than threaten with the possibility of punishment, he, he directs our attention not to our behavior, but to our Savior. He points us to the object of our faith, showing us once again that proper godly fear of God is not something we kind of conjure up within ourselves. It's something which flows out of the identity given to us in Christ. Our knowledge of the high price paid adjusts a couple of things in our thinking. Uh, first, we've been ransomed, and if we've been ransomed, we've been ransomed from one thing unto another thing. 
the image here is that we've been bought or ransomed from slavery to sin. A position we inherited, he says, from our forefathers, which Peter deems vain or useless. The saints here to whom Peter writes were mired in sin, like all of us were before conversion. Slaves to the cruel taskmaster, and one generation after another, born into slavery to that same master. And the labors of those generations of slaves never bore a single good piece of fruit. It was utter futility, Peter says. But God saw these people, these slaves, and paid the price to redeem them. And though they adored their taskmaster, delighting in kind of the futile ways that they were engaged in, and they thought poisonous fruit was sweet fruit. They rejected and rebelled against the Redeemer and clung to their captor kind of like a person with Stockholm Syndrome. We're not natural-born children of God. We're not even orphans who, who long to be adopted but can't get a family and finally found a home. We're rebels and God-haters, and He nonetheless made us His with the price. So knowledge of our ransom out of this slavery and unto God leads us to reject those things of the old life, of the old slavery to sin which captivated us. Though they do constantly press in on us. But we realize we're not bound to those things anymore. We reject them as idols of the old dead heart. And now we fear God alone. I turn to 2 Corinthians quick. I think this passage in illustrates the point well. 2 Corinthians 6. Start in verse 14 and go through chapter 7, verse 1. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separated from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So the fear of God leads us to reject the old dead way of life and moves us unto a newness of life, toward a newness of life. Second thing, our knowledge of the value of the price paid for us produces in us a profound sense of awe, of gratitude. The price often demonstrates value. That's kind of the point of price. If somebody hands me a copy of of the free newspaper, I say thank you very much. If somebody hands me a $100 bill, 
Well, I have a lot more gratitude at that point. Value is shown by that. Of course, if somebody gives you something, the worst response we can have toward a generous gift is to try to pay the person back. You know, they give us a $100 bill and you say, oh, I owe you, I owe you, I'll get you back. No, it's a gift. Don't try to pay me back, but that's what we try to do. With the infinite price of Christ, the cost of, cost of the blood of Christ, that price is infinite and thus leaves us with empty hands. No matter how much we try to give back, it leaves us bare. And all we can do is stand in awe and fear of our God. The cost of Christ's blood lays us bare. The third and final wellspring of proper godly fear is uh, the work of God in redemption. Verses 20 through 21. And he was foreknown before the foundation of the world that is Christ was, but made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Edmund Clowney points out that these verses here stand in contrast with the last one. They stand in contrast with that hollowness, vainness of the way of life. He says, In contrast with the empty life of hollow men, Christians are given faith and hope in God. Meaninglessness evaporates in the glory of ultimate meaning, the eternal plan and purpose of God. So back in verse 18 we read, that the vain idolatry from which these people were redeemed was inherited from their forefathers. People love tradition. We love tradition. Anything that goes back to our parents or our grandparents is precious to us. And roots that run deep are hard to get out. Of course, there's nothing wrong inherently with tradition or roots. In fact, I would say tradition is a good thing as long as it's defined by God's standards. But these people that he's writing to would surely have held those ways inherited by their forefathers in high esteem. These are the things passed down to us. They're wonderful. They might have said these practices have roots. My family's been doing it this way for 25 generations. We've been worshiping the same gods, performing the same sacrifices, following the same rules for thousands of years. And Peter says it's all vain. It's a useless way of life. And he says if you want some roots, try reaching back to before time. Try a Savior foreknown before the foundation of the world. The vanity of ancient sin and idolatry is set against here the meaningfulness of a God who actually takes action. We read in Jeremiah, O Lord, my strength and my stronghold, my refuge in the day of trouble, to you shall the nations come from the ends of the earth and say, Our fathers have inherited nothing but lies, worthless things, which there is no profit. In contrast, the one foreknown before the foundation of the world has been revealed to us. No vain idol has ever been revealed. No vain idol became a man that through him we might believe in the one true God. And certainly no idol raised anyone from the dead. 21 says, 
who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. (coughs) Our God is the one and only true God who has taken any action. He has planned and worked through time and history to redeem us as his people. Now, it took me a while this week to get the connection here between that theme and fear, the fear of God. But I realized at the very core of the idea of fearing the Lord is the exclusivity of the one true God. In other words, to rightly fear the Lord, you must fear the Lord. Which means fearing Him alone. God revealed the Son that we might believe, it says, in God. And the Father raised Him from the dead that we might once again have faith and hope in God. So the deepest wellspring of godly fear in the Christian life is God's redeeming work, past, present, and future, by which He moved us to have faith and hope in God. I think that theme gets at the heart of what it means to walk with fear or a spirit of reverence throughout the time of our life here on earth. That we walk in faith and hope toward God. That's at the center of the Christian's fear of God. I have this image of a child, you know, he climbed up on the tree or on a a rock and then he's afraid to get down. He, He can't get down. So he calls his father to come help him. And the father comes, you know, jump into my arms, but the kid is too afraid to jump into his arms. He won't trust his father to catch him in that moment. And maybe he looks around desperately for other means of rescue. Meanwhile, his father's right there waiting with open arms. We can't rightly say that the child has proper respect or awe or fear of his father in that moment. He refuses to trust him. True, proper, holy awe is expressed in complete reliance and trust. Similarly, each of us is in a scary situation. We see a God who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. It's obvious our deeds don't measure up and we're in trouble. We see that there's no way out or no way we can help ourselves, though we do try to help ourselves. We seek help from other gods, the the God of self, God of possessions. We find a false sense of security in the traditions of our forefathers. But we who are born again, we fear God, not as a wrathful executioner, but as Father. The strength of the Father's arms is frightening to those who oppose Him. But for his children, his strength is our security. And so we call on him as Father. We say, help, Father, rescue me from this peril. And then we rest with reverent, exclusive fear and awe in our Father's saving arms. Amen.